sing to the Lord a new song, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us worship the Lord our God.
Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. God's praise is in the assembly of the faithful. Let them praise God's name with dancing, making melody to God with tambourine and lyre. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia on this beautiful rainy Sunday morning. We are glad and grateful to gather together in God's name. And because it is in God's name that we have gathered in Christ's name, our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifiers whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship tag. You'll find that on your pew. Sign it, send it down the pew and back again, and that way we'll have the advantage of each other's names. Likewise, I'd like to invite everyone to a celebratory welcome back luncheon, which is taking place in Old Buttonwood Hall immediately after this service. Old Buttonwood is just out this door to my right and down a short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have been toiling all morning over a feast of fried chicken and fixings and all sorts of ways to bring us together that we might enjoy one another's company. So please do come down to Old Buttonwood Hall and have lunch together. I have several things I want to cover in the announcements portion of your bulletin, so I'm going to go through them somewhat quickly. The first one is that walking tour today. I see Rick and Shelley back there. On or off? We're going. We're going. The walking tour is going. So if you have interest in that, find Rick and Shelley. They'd love to include you in that walking tour of Philadelphia's railroad history. It should be a great tour. You note as well, there's an insert in your bulletin about the lecture upcoming at Presbyterian Historical Society. We're going to hear more about that in just a minute, but it does require you to register. Our TNTs, our 20s and 30s, will gather next Sunday for an event, so please do uh, plan to meet and be part of that. Now, the real meat of what I need to say to you today. You may be wondering, what do we do when we transition from one organist choir master to another? And the reason you have not heard me say anything about this to you beyond our print media is you don't really talk about the transition while the person who's leaving is still sitting on the organ bench. But we have celebrated Andrew, and now it is time for me to tell you a little bit about what our process will be. So the first thing I want to say is a very hearty and thankful welcome to Stephen Tharp, who is our organist for the day today. You will hear, you, many of you have heard Stephen before as he was a recitalist here at First Church, but you will hear Stephen three more times throughout the course of this fall. And we have organist coverage to carry us all the way through the end of, of January and well beyond that if we need to. So you can be assured that there will be music at First Church on Sunday morning. We have one Sunday we were not able to procure an organist, and it happens to be next Sunday, so we will have a service led by piano, and of course our music will be selected to be appropriate to be sung with the piano. But we are very, very pleased to have a, a stellar lineup of organists coming to support our singing as a congregation and support our choir's leadership of worship. 
You may be wondering if we will have the same conductor throughout the fall. I know that will shift a little bit too. Now, some of our pieces can be conducted by members of the choir themselves. We have a number of choristers with considerable gifts in conducting. You will see a rotating cast of them through the fall. But perhaps most, uh, most importantly, for our 325th anniversary celebration and for all of Advent, our choir will be ably led by Donald Nally, the Grammy Award-winning conductor of a voice choir here in Philadelphia called The Crossing. You may look them up and find out a bit more about them if you're interested in learning about Donald Nally. We are so pleased that Donald will be able to be with us for our celebratory services throughout the course of this fall. So that's a way to let you know that there will be music at First Church during this transition. Let me tell you a little bit now about the transition itself. One does not simply go out and find an organist choir master. There is a search process that will take place. Uh, because music is such an important part of the, of the life of our congregation, this will be a national search. And what that means is our search committee will search until they find the right person. So I cannot give you a time frame on what the transition will be. If they find the right person in four months, fabulous. If it takes 10 months, fabulous also. We will search until we find the right person because music is such a part of our identity as worshipers here at First Church. Our personnel committee has recruited a search committee purposefully from the congregation. Everyone who was on the committee was asked to be so because of gifts or experiences they bring to bear on it. That search committee, and you can read about this in your messenger, is comprised of Dolores Brisbane, chair, Fran Kramer, Brian Chu, who is our personnel committee co-chair, Philip Amoa, and the Reverend Cindy Jarvis. They will be conducting listening sessions with our choir over the next while, and they will also seek a listening session with you, the congregation, to hear what is important to you as we seek out the next person to lead our music program. By definition, searches are confidential. They won't be able to tell you everything. They might be able to tell you a little snippet here or there, how they're making progress or where they are in the process, perhaps. But if you ask them a question, they say, I just can't answer that. We just have to respect the confidentiality of the search process. I believe that is everything. So with these things noted, let's turn now to our Minute for History from the Presbyterian Historical Society. As you all know, you've been reading in the Messenger and hearing the notices uh, from the chancel. This year, we are celebrating and observing the 325th anniversary of the founding of this congregation. We have several events coming up over the fall, and keep your eyes peeled for events in October and in November. But the next event is the lecture and reception at the Presbyterian Historical Society on September the 21st. And if you'll look in your insert, it will give you the information about that. But as Baron mentioned, registration is required. And the deadline for registration is on Tuesday the 12th. It's important that you register since we need to prepare food and prepare seating so that we have the, enough to satisfy everybody. And uh, also, as we mentioned, this reception properly is going to be, and the lecture is going to be held at the Presbyterian Historical Society. And the information uh, about that is going to be relayed to you by the executive director, uh, Nancy Taylor. 
We also have with us from the Historic Society Lucy Dustin Bramble, who is the uh, Director of Development. Now, once and both Nancy and Lucy are going to be with us for the brunch. Lucy actually has something over us in terms of her church membership. She is an elder at the uh, Christ Presbyterian Church in, uh, in Long Island. And her church was founded in 1544. 1644. Yeah, 1644. So she has 54 years on us in terms of celebration. But now I'll turn this over to Nancy, the Executive Director of the Historic Society. Good morning, everyone. I am so honored to be with you this morning and during your 325th anniversary year. I will share with you that um, my home church, Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church, is celebrating an anniversary this year, but only 150 years. So you all have 175 years on us. And when I think about those first 175 years of the history of First and Second Presbyterian Churches of Philadelphia, there were so many key events in the history of the Presbyterian Church in this country. Um, your church has seen so much important Presbyterian history, and it's just an honor to be here as you continue through your 325th anniversary and beyond. In the mid-19th century, when the Presbyterian Historical Society was organized in 1852, there was little doubt that we would join you all in Center City, Philadelphia, because Philadelphia was still seen as the nexus of Presbyterian history in, in the United States. And CHS has really benefited greatly from the Presbyterian penchant for keeping and preserving records. And your church has been an exemplar of that trait. Um, did you know that we hold registers from First Church that include marriages from 1701, I'm sorry, baptisms from 1701, and marriages from 1702. And we also have the first meeting minutes from your church that date from the 1740s. We currently hold on deposit First Presbyterian Church records that span all the years from 1701 to the 2010s. What a treasure trove of history. Collecting, preserving, and sharing Presbyterian Church records is core to our mission. We may be located in Philadelphia, but we are the National Archives of the Presbyterian Church USA. We have church records from all over the country and foreign mission records from many parts of the world. We are also a key source for information on uh, the primary ecumenical organizations in this country, including the National Council of Churches and Religious News Service. In recent years, we've been working hard to fill gaps in our holdings, especially the missing voices and experiences of Black Presbyterians and LGBTQ Presbyterians. We are committed to, holding, to building strong collections and to draw in diverse researchers. And we want to support what we see as the transformative power of history, both in the Presbyterian Church USA and in the wider community. You are always welcome to visit our website, 
to reach out with a history question or to visit us to conduct research. We're at Fifth and Lombard here in Center City. But if you come to the event, the reception and lecture that Bill has mentioned and that's described in the insert, you will also have the opportunity to see some of the records and artifacts from our collection of First and Second Presbyterian churches. We will give building tours, behind the scenes building tours, so you can really get a sense of how large our collection is and what is in that, that faux Georgian building at Fifth and Lombard. And then you'll, we'll, you will be able to hear Dr. Heath Carter. And not only is he um, professor of church history at Princeton Theological Seminary, but he has very recently joined me as a senior co-editor of the Journal of Presbyterian History. Throughout our shared history in Philadelphia, PHS has been blessed with so much support from First Presbyterian Church. I want to thank you for trusting us to care for your records, and I hope that we have repaid that support in kind. Congratulations on this very significant 350, sorry, 325 years and counting, and blessings on your continued ministry. During this time of confession, I am reminded of the words of the Australian theologian Benjamin Meyer, who, when reflecting on his life, he writes, If I could do it all over again, if I could do my whole life from the start, I would make the same mistakes and let all the same mistakes happen to me too, if only it meant that I could have a chance just once to forgive and be forgiven. It's in the same spirit that we come to this prayer of confession each week. This is not a place of judgment or of shame. It's not a place where we tally up all the wrongs that we've done and the ways we've been wrong. It's not even a place of perfection uh, where perfection is expected or demanded. This time of confession is an invitation into the sacred, transformative work of forgiveness, where we dare to repair what has been broken and reimagine a way forward together as a community. So friends, come. Let us be part of God's holy work of repair and reconciliation by praying together our prayer of confession, first out loud and then silently. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you have formed us into a beloved community, dedicated to you, called to life together. This is a gift of grace meant to enrich our existence ensuring that no matter what we encounter, we will be supported. There will be someone to walk with us, to hold us dear. And yet sometimes what it takes to be together in this way is costly. It demands honesty of us and humility and a willingness to risk authenticity. And too often we are unwilling to do these things. We continue in disharmony rather than addressing what lies between us. Forgive us, we pray, and teach us what it is to be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.
good news of this day is that we follow a God of forgiveness. The past is not forgotten or avoided or repressed, but rather through Christ's forgiveness, the past is no longer a barrier in our relationships with God, with each other, and with ourselves. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. scripture lesson for this morning comes from the book of Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 14. Listen for God's word for you. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb the same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with its head and legs and inner organs. You shall not let any of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Listen again for God's word for you. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up with this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Before we move to our gospel lesson, there is one thing I would like to add to my remarks about the music transition earlier, and that is to say this. To say that we are grateful for our choir is an understatement. We are grateful. We know how blessed we are. And thank you. Our final reading of scripture comes to us from the gospel according to Matthew, the 18th chapter. We read there from verses 15 to 20. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the presence of the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, 
I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In an article entitled, Six Stories of Sin, Brian Doyle recounted confessions made to parish priests or pastors, and a few do seem to be just a bit shy of the mark of Christian virtue. Here is one such confession. The admission of assault, but not battery, on a squirrel by a homeowner occasioned by what the homeowner characterized as continual deliberate provocation by the squirrel in question, upon which the homeowner's temper finally snapped and he did roar at, threaten, insult, denigrate, and impugn the squirrel, about which the homeowner felt awful later. Another was the sin of running up the score at a little league game because one of the coaches had once dated and rather unceremoniously dumped the wife of the other coach. Faced with the opportunity to, to avenge his wife's offense, the coach told his team to apply the full court press despite being up by 24 points. The coach felt guilty the next day and sought the counsel of the priest who asked him if he would like to confess. The coach replied, well, no. We only won by 32, that's not a sin. Winning by 50 would have been a sin. And then there are times when there is no malintention, just thoughtlessness. I am in mind of the time a friend of mine named Sally was seated with her back to the door of a restaurant during a vicious cold snap. Each time the door would swing open, she would brace herself for the cold blast. Finally, 
The door stayed open, and Sally reflexively said loudly, close the door, only to turn around and see that the very elderly woman coming in the restaurant had gotten the wheel of her oxygen tank caught on the door frame. It was her second grade Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Any of us can, if we are honest, remember a time when we should have and could have acted better. I often say that's one of the multitude of reasons I don't have a fish design on the trunk of my car. I would be in a state of continual apology. We all know there are moments when we could have and should have done better. There is a prevailing wind in preaching theory these days that sermons should only ever be good news. And I'm with them on that. But further, that the preacher should avoid using ought or should or God calls us to. And with all due respect to the theoreticians, we all know when we could have done better and no avoidance of certain auxiliary verbs will change that basic fact. We all know when there are occasions that we must confess our sin. I always appreciate the honesty of those of you who tell us that we don't leave quite enough time between the corporate confession and the I appreciate the honesty that it takes to admit that we're all ready to believe the promise of the gospel and you haven't quite gotten through Tuesday yet. Well, our honesty is all well and good. But what about when the equation reverses? What about when you are the wrong party? It's fine to laugh and chuckle about slapstick sins, but what about when it really matters? What about those moments when you are hurt to the core, where you're not even 100% sure you even want to reconcile what is wrong? How hard has it been to heed Jesus' teaching? What Jesus has to say on the matter of reconciliation could be boiled down to some basic good advice for resolving differences. Sadly, it is also advice that most of us won't ever actually follow. Now look at what he says. If someone sins against you, you have to tell them. Now I don't know about you, but I'm not inclined to tell people when they have hurt my feelings. I am much more inclined to stew about it. I might be inclined to talk about it to other people. Edwin Friedman calls this triangulation. You don't tell the person who hurt your feelings. You tell somebody else, and you expect them to go back and tell the person who hurt your feelings, and it's all handled behind the scenes. And triangulation isn't limited to communicating about hurt feelings, and generally speaking, it is a very bad method of communication. But Jesus teaches that there is a way for reconciliation to unfold. If someone sins against you, tell them when it's just the two of you. Don't gossip about it. Don't bring in a third party. 
don't simmer and seethe. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. And that's so hard to do sometimes, isn't it? But Jesus says, if you will do it, that one is regained. Community is preserved. I would love to tell you that I have a perfect track record on this, but I don't. Maybe you don't either. Perhaps we should all take a note from what Jesus teaches us. Only after step one may we move to step two. Step two is when another person goes with you to deal with the sin. And note that this is still not triangulation. This is still direct communication. If someone has hurt you, you must tell them. And then comes stage three. This is the, the bit where the whole church gets involved. I have to confess, this seems a bit impracticable to be to me, not just because I'm one of your pastors and I know I'm going to have to listen to it all if we go down this road. No, it seems impracticable to me because I know how hard it is to affect reconciliation on a large scale. It takes enormous work, an enormous commitment, and most will give up before it is achieved. Now please note, there is a difference between annoying and irritating someone and sinning against them. Annoying someone is just that. It's gritting the gears. It's personalities just not jiving. It's Differences of opinion on things that sometimes perhaps even matter a very great deal, but at the end of the day, it's still just an opinion. Sin is different. Sin is brokenness. If you annoy me, I'm probably not going to tell you. And if I annoy you, I probably don't need to hear about it. But if the relationship between us is broken... We have a responsibility to address it. If the relationship between you and your child is broken, it needs to be addressed. If the relationship between you and the person you share your life with is broken, it needs to be addressed. Because God does not want us to persist in brokenness. But unfortunately, brokenness is the path of least resistance. That is what makes it so pernicious. It is almost always easier to simply leave the relationship broken than to be honest and to tell the truth. But Jesus knew how deadly it is to remain in sin because sin is brokenness and sin causes brokenness. Sin causes gun violence. Sin causes unequal health outcomes. Sin causes division and rancor. Sin destroys charity and mutual forbearance. Sin 
Is that in your life which you are too ashamed to name, but you know is not right? And talking about sin is awkward. It is not a pleasant topic because it hurts us. The thing about sin is that from the very beginning, from the beginning of the Bible, Sin accomplishes all of these things by destroying community. Sure, we can stumble along with things broken for a little while, but it always affects us. Just as trauma theorists remind us that the body keeps score of what hurts us, so too sin does not just go away. It must be dealt with. And not all resolutions are neat and clean. Not all resolutions are happy. At the 9 o'clock service, Laura illustrated with this to the children by tearing apart a piece of paper and then taping it back together. Sure, it came back together, but the tears in the paper were still there, still visible. It does not always come back together neatly. But continuing in brokenness runs counter to the wholeness that God wants for us. And God does so want us to be whole. God wants that for us individually, and God wants that for our communities. Which is why Jesus has given us this extraordinary basic good advice that most of us won't follow. But catch this, it's not just advice, it's actually a command. What Jesus is commanding is community. It is real community, not just pleasant associations and nice acquaintanceships, but deep community that cares for the fabric of creation in a way that grafts us into God's creative and generative and redemptive activity. And it is, as I said last week, a way of life. It is a way of life, and it is at times a costly way of life because it demands something of us. I think all of us know the real difference between what is expensive and what is costly. What is expensive may or may not be worth very much. A a car or a piece of jewelry may be expensive, but at the end of the day, it is not worth a thing other than the money that you can get for it. But real relationships, real relationships where truth is told and burdens are shared, those are worth something. Real relationships, when the world comes crashing in, there are those united to us in Christ who will be there. That's what's important. That's what's at stake. And that is why it is worth the discomfort and the unease of telling the truth. And Jesus had one more thing to say on the matter. He said, if those steps don't work, let the sinner be like a tax collector or a Gentile to you. And I think he surely must have known that there are some folks who won't change, no matter how directly they are confronted. He surely must have known there are some people who are unwilling or unable to face up to what they have done to others. Perhaps it sounds harsh, but I think 
at a very basic level, there is something kind about the recognition that we cannot change other people. Sometimes the kindest, most caring thing we can do for ourselves is simply to step away trusting that Jesus has a soft spot for tax collectors and Gentiles. Jesus does not require us to chase reconciliation to the point of perpetual re-injury. We can't fix everything. And that is when we leave a little room for Jesus. And that's the good news. That is the promise of the gospel. That God is never done with us. God is always working on us. You know, forgiveness is the bedrock of our life together. It is a gift that God has given us, even knowing, as God does, how costly it is to forgive. But know this as well. Reconciliation does not mean giving the offending party everything they want. It means releasing yourself from holding that burden and relinquishing your claim to vengeance because of it. Elsewhere in the pages of the Bible, we read that we are not even supposed to give our offerings with a grudge on our hearts. So if you are harboring a grudge against anyone this morning, maybe let the church carry the giving to you this week. Nor may we approach communion without examining ourselves, because you can't feed a grudge from Christ's table. So bear that in mind the next time we come to this heavenly feast. And I say these things remembering that I have spent most of my ministry working to ensure that church is a place of deep hospitality, inclusivity, and welcome. It matters to me to my core that you know that you are welcome in this place unconditionally. But how we come matters. I would do us all a disservice today if I suggested that the beloved community that Christ offers us does not require us to work on ourselves. Many of you may know an old piece of Cherokee wisdom that there are two wolves within each of us vying for control of our soul. One wolf is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, and the like. And the other wolf is goodness, benevolence, generosity, truth, all those virtues that we Christians might call the fruits of the Spirit. And when this story is told in the Cherokee tradition, it culminates with a young man asking his grandfather, which wolf will win? 
grandfather replies, the one that you feed. Jesus is asking us to do the hardest thing we will do in life, to find it within ourselves to tell the truth and to seek reconciliation when relationships are broken. No one should ever pretend that that is easy, or even that we understand everything Jesus meant when he said these things. But life together is that important. Because in the last analysis, life together is what he has given us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us join our voices together and participate in God's reconciling work by declaring together what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We come together each week to do the messy, costly relationship work of the church. This means that we do not give up on one another easily. Neither do we excuse patterns of harm or legacies of oppression, but love has called us together as one people to support one another, to challenge each other, and to build a new reality together. With gratitude for the gift of community, of the reminder that we do not walk through this life alone, let us bring what we have together. Your tithes and offerings will now be received.
congregation, we offer these gifts to you in order to take a step closer to you and to one another. May our vulnerability be met with compassion. May our willingness to step outside of our individual lives be met with welcome and care. We ask you to bless these gifts that they may be used to do your reconciling work in the world and throughout our city. We pray in the name of Jesus, who ties us together this day. Amen. Let us pray again. Loving God, we thank you for this sacred gathering, for this weekly reminder that wherever two or three are gathered, you are there. We thank you for the ocean of your love that breaks through the dam of our self-sufficiency and indifference and allows for a new imagining of community. We come before you this day as an unexpected people, gathered together not because we are rich or worthy or good, but simply because we said yes to your invitation to be a united group daring to believe that there is always room for more. And God, we also come before you this day as a wounded people, as a people who've been hurt in our relationships and who simply cannot imagine a way forward. We offer to you these relationships where forgiveness feels off the table. It is easy enough, God, for us to declare that we are to love one another, and yet we know that there are some spaces where your reconciling love feels like too much. There are some situations that we cannot fix on our own, and that is where we need you to enter in, O oh God. Enter into our very real, real wounds and our justifiable grudges. Enter into our ideological divides that feel like a bottomless pit. Enter into our class, race, and gender disparities. Enter into our national divides. Enter into our punitive instincts. Enter into these broken relationships and impossible places and take the burden of them away from us. God of reconciliation, we ask you this day to gather together the, the torn down places of this world and to envelop us with your joy, with your newness and surprise. Bring us together, O oh God, even now as we pray the prayer your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
ever look closely at the front of this building, there are a couple of places where, by all architectural logic, a cross ought to be standing. But if you read the history of this congregation, you will find that at the time of the building, there was a vigorous debate, which probably means all three steps of the reconciliation process had to be followed to bring the congregation back together, about whether or not that cross should be placed there or whether it should remain vacant. However they reconciled, clearly they did, we're here today. But I would posit that the cross that we raise is the one of our very community. By our witness together in this place, we lift high the cross of Christ so that this community might know who he is. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.